Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation co-hosted by Lenya Wilson and myself, Alexandra Detalia. Listen to our conversations while we discuss race and womanhood at the hearth level. I'm Lenya. I'm Alexandra. Can Black women and white women have deep and authentic friendships? And what are the stumbling blocks to those friendships? And I think our listeners should know that we actually recorded this last week. And upon listening to it, we just got caught up in our own memories. And so it ended up really not getting as deep as we wanted, although we made good points. So here we are today with a slightly more organized arc to sort of keep us on track because with interracial friendships, there's a lot to say and it's all very personal. And so we recognize even in this episode that we are speaking from our own experiences and not pretending to generalize at all about any of this. But we hope our journey helps you. Why do you think white women often say they have friendships with black women while black women often feel acquaintanceship? And I think I think we need to actually preface that with, we each asked our friends what whether they had interracial friendships and what they were and, and what happened for you. So yeah, this was very eye-opening all over this entire process, even going back to the last week's attempt at this. And I asked my friends, I asked several white friends, several black friends, and my black friends, all of them, 100% of them said that they don't have white friends. And with one friend in particular, I pushed back because I have white friends. And so I thought, you know, I, are you guys being racist? Like what's going on? And then they were all very much of the way that they navigate white spaces all the time. So of course they know white people and they're comfortable in certain situations and that they don't want to have to navigate all of that on their personal time. And so when you have friendships on your personal time, stop you right there. Like to ask like, so when your black friends were saying They navigate white space all the time and they didn't want to have to make other people comfortable. I I think the question then becomes, how do black people make white people feel comfortable? And, And I think we're talking about, again, white progressives who consider themselves woke. And so what is being done to make us comfortable? I guess it's the topics of conversation, the vernacular they use, their mannerisms, you know, I think as East Coasters, part of our thing is that we're loud. And I think part of Black culture is loud as well. But I think when Black individuals are, you know, engaging with white individuals in a social setting, they tone that down quite a lot. Talking about code switching, if that's if the term? In a way, it's code switching. It's more code switching in the manner in which they're speaking to you, the vernacular, the, you know how they would talk to you if, you know, they were just in their backyard at home versus hanging out with you at brunch. Right. But then you would definitely, that's definitely code switching. But, you know, the toning down your voice and you might even change your, and this is something that I I saw in a Trevor Noah interview, you might even change the octave in which you speak. So there, you know, there is a lot of, you know, change of behavior when you're hanging around white people in order to make white people feel more comfortable with you and less and feel less threatened, if that's the right term. So can I ask, do you, do you code switch with me? I don't code switch with you. 
So Alex, you are one of the few white women in my life that I treat the same way I would treat any of my other friends. I don't have a lot of friends, like a lot of close friends, but I feel like I could definitely just talk to you any way that I would talk to anyone and I'm fine. So I don't think I've ever code switched in front of you. For some reason, from the very beginning, I felt very comfortable with you, but I do code switch with almost everyone else. I even probably change the way I like the tone of my voice. I think I'm deeper when I speak to you. It's fine. And when I'm talking to everyone else, but I feel like I talk like this when I'm talking to my other friends and I don't even know why, but I think it just is more in line with the way they're speaking. So I think it just makes them feel more comfortable. I I hear that. I, I, and not to, not to exhibit white fragility and compare it to a woman's situation, but just to feel empathy by saying, I feel that only because I change my vernacular language demeanor at my workplace than I do with my friend. Uh, yes. and, I, and, it's a, it's, and I have to be honest, it's exhausting. Um, yeah. I have great empathy for like your friend saying to you, it's the weekend. I, I don't want to have to do that. Like that's tiring. And my weekends are about exploring. I want to bring something up that's very interesting that I I was looking at signs during the protests because this was a perfect example of white friends and your white allies showing, like really showing up, going to the protests with you with signs. And I found there was this one black woman had a sign saying, white friends, this is the cookout. Oh, wow. Right, so... And, you know, I was incredibly impressed with all of the white people who did show up for all of these protests that continue to show up for these protests. These are the people that will be invited to the cookout. So then why why do you think then white people often say they have friendships with black people? We're understanding now why black people might say acquaintanceships and that's how they're making the divide. Why would white women say they have friends? Is it just a matter of definition? You know, I don't know, because the two white women that responded to the question said, of course I have black friends. And I wanted to delve deeper in that, but I didn't. And I thought I would ask you, actually, why do you think that? Well, one, I think that, and I can only speak for white women, is that white women have a very interesting definition of friends. And, you know, and I'm not going to get engaged with the word bestie and BFF, because both those things make me want to vomit. But the idea of having close friends and just having friends and then having acquaintances. And I think it also might depend if you're an introvert, how you describe people. And if you're an extrovert, I might say, I have like, people say to me all the time, you have tons of friends. And I gotta be honest, I don't actually have a ton of friends. I have tons of acquaintances, acquaintances Mm -hmm. that I really enjoy. I don't mean it as a slam that acquaintances aren't people I enjoy spending time with. And I'm really open. So people are like, but you're so open with them. I was like, I'm an open, I'm an open book. But if you want to talk about my fears, then we're talking, it's my group of friends. Like, I'll tell you any embarrassing story about myself. I'll tell you any failure I've had. Those things don't bother me. And I'm very open about them. My acquaintances know about them. About my fears and my insecurities. Oh, that's for a few people. And I tend to think that generally as a culture, women are brought up to say the more friends, the merrier. So we're collecting them, you know, the more, the better, the, it makes us look better. It makes us more popular. I mean, I actually think we might just be defining friends differently. Mm. Well, you know, I wouldn't say bestie. I would say if I'm not code switching, I'd be like my ride or die. All right. See, that's, yeah, 
I get that. So, and I think that's, a, and I think just like that phrase tells you how deep the friendship is in the right. black community. So for me, like I call it my tribe, right? Like, so for instance, my, I live out here, my family's all back East. And for me, when I think about who I want to be with, like on a weekend, when I'm tired, I want to be with my tribe. And my tribe is San Francisco people. You know, they're the, they're mostly, quite frankly, East Coast transplants who've come to California. We all met in San Francisco, and then we all ended up moving down here together. And there's a small group of us that have sort of survived 20 years of friendship, and they're like family to me. And they're the people I want to spend my weekend with, especially if I've had a really exhausting week. And then the other word that I use to describe newer friends would be kindred spirit. Like you are a kindred spirit. I knew that the minute I met you, it was sort of an, on an energetic level that I sort of felt that we matched. And, and that's rare because you and I are both really high energy and, <laughs> and we're both loud and we're both opinionated and we're both seekers. And I was like, ah, kindred spirit. And I get the distinction, but I also think that progressive white women want to be seen as the good ones. And how do you show you're a good one? Except, and I think this is this is where we need to go deeper than we did last week, is like white women want to show they're good people by having black friends. And I, I think it comes from an earnest place, partly, and then partly a, a place of white fragility. And, mm. I, and I think that's why when you ask your white friends, do you have black friends? Well, of course I have black friends because to sort of say I don't have any black friends is to maybe say, you know, Lenya, don't think I'm a racist. Don't think I'm a bad person. Like, I think there's real fear there of okay. being uh, held open and, and all fair, in all fairness to people. And I think that's what's unfortunate because then I think white progressive women are caught in a vortex they might really want a group of diverse friends to reflect the diversity of their lives and that they know in their hearts that having a diversity, a diverse community will better themselves as a human. And just like you like to travel and learn about different cultures, why would you not have a group of friends that come from many different cultures and many different socioeconomic backgrounds? So not just along race lines. And you want that. But still, you sit in your backyard on a Sunday, and I'm mostly with a homogeneous group of people. And even if they're even if they're different races or different ethnicities, I gotta say, there's something else really all binding us together. Whether it's we're all from the East Coast, whether it's we all grew up middle class, whether it's we all grew up, I would say like a lot of my friends up in San Francisco, I would say we're second or third generation American. We're all Gen Xers, which has a whole other slew of things that we have in common. But I think that's where white progressive women might be coming from. That's where at least I would be coming from when I'd say, I would like to have Black friends, like not just Black friends, but people of diverse communities. But Lenya, if you ask me, I have you. <laughs> I was going to ask you. So. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's all I got. Wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. And we actually, so then this, so then my next question was going to be what level of friendship do you have with black friends? But if I'm your only black friend. <laughs> I have lots of acquaintances. But... You sent me a very interesting article that I want to talk about. All right. Um, you sent me the, what should you know about interracial friendships? 
Do you remember in the article investigating the rarity of interracial friendships and how they took a thousand wedding photos? This is the, I'm going to read this because I really want to discuss this with you. And then I'll tell you why. Those featured in wedding party photos, 3.7% of whites were close enough to their black friends to include them in their wedding parties. Wedding parties, meaning, I guess, their bridegrooms and, and um, bridesmaids. And then 22.2% of African-Americans included white groomsmen and bridesmaids in their wedding parties. That's six times the amount of whites included blacks in theirs. So that to me seems like black people are more open to having the friendships, which is a complete, you know, opposite to my friend saying absolutely not. That is such a weird... Well, this just seems to confirm my suspicion that backyard parties are more intimate and authentic than any wedding anyone would ever have. At least that's my very biased opinion on the wedding industry. But think about, but, would you have, would you have somebody that you don't really know as your bridesmaid? I mean, I get it in the, I get it for the actual wedding guests, right? Cause my dad was like, you have to invite these 10 people whom I didn't even know for my wedding. And I was like, I don't even know these people, but they had to come. So I get that the wedding guests are going to be people like, but when in your actual bridal party, your bridesmaids and your bridesgrooms, are you going to have your friends or, and or cousins or some family members, people that you're very close to, you wouldn't invite some random to be your bridesmaid, would you? No, but here's the thing. One, even at the beginning of our conversation, you said, you know, Black people walk through white spaces all the time and have to handle white gaze and manage in the white community in order in their workplace, wherever they live. And to some degree, that is going to make, in the, in the end, Black people much more adaptable than white people in general, because white people just walk around in white environments and they don't need to really adapt to anything. And so, in essence, when you're thinking about a Black person might become really close to a white person, just the sheer population difference, mm -hmm. that it would maybe make sense. And then my second question would always be like, let's question the statistics because, yeah. you know, when they're doing this, are they doing this in New York City or are they doing this in New Orleans? Like where the statistics come from? Because if you're looking at white enclaves, if, if, if people are getting married at 21 and they're having people in their bridal parties be whoever they went to high school with, for a lot of, they're not going to even know a black person. So I don't, I mean, I don't know, I, but I do think that it's absolutely, I think, reflective of the concept that black people live in a white world and yes. that's what that's reflecting. And I still think that when still you're sitting home on a Saturday or a Sunday and you just want to go to the park, there is that sense of close-knit like it's not a big party have you had a party where you've just let everybody like you've invited all your friends from all your walks of life only once my 50th i was there yeah and you were there yes and that was a very weird party because it, it turns yeah. out every family and your family was there i mean so you were yes like, like east coast family west yes. coast family everybody was there people even family and friends from other countries showed up English, Australian, it was, it was a very, but did you see how every, the way people uh, congregated? Yes. Those who knew each other stayed together. 
and it was, and no one kind of crossed other places. And it made for me having to go from table to table, to table, to table, to be able to talk to everyone. Like people weren't crossing over to tables, which kind of made me sad, Yeah, but I get it. But that is really sad. And I think that goes to part of a cultural divide and a racial divide that still exists. Like even at this party where you did invite everybody from all walks of life. When you do these things, I mean, do you talk about race with your white friends? Well, the only person I think I talk, only white person I talk to regularly are you. And yes, we talk about race all the time. <laughs> but yes. I have tried, um, I've, I've recently tried to have like, there's a friend or a woman that I like a lot. We have a lot in common in the sense that we also go to the same gym. We have, I've tried to talk about race with her, but I get spiritually bypassed, right? Which is something that I can't stand. Oh, I wish there was just, everybody would just, you know, get along, love and light, blah, blah, blah. So you're basically spiritually bypassing the pain and trauma that black people have had for years and years and years. And when she said that, it kind of made me go, "Mm." and so now we're, it's not that we're not friends. I still think she's a lovely person, but I'm not going to try to explore anything deeper. Right. And I wonder sometimes now, since we've had these conversations, how many times in the past have I done that with other white friends or white people that I have gotten close enough with that I thought maybe I could go to that next level, but they've done something in that like way that has made me go, oh, well, we would never be able to get that deep. Yeah. For me, when you were having your 50th birthday party, Mm -hmm. did you worry like now reflecting, you notice that groups didn't get together and groups didn't, didn't really mix or anything. But did you worry about that beforehand? No, I, I, I really wish I'd have thought about it more. If I'd have thought about it more, I probably would have had two separate parties. Wow. I would have had my friends and I would have had my family. The problem, the reason obviously that I didn't do that because it would have been so expensive, but like it just would have been easier to navigate my friends and then my family. But even then within my friends, I find that there's this huge kind of like riff because my friend's life is different. I have my arty friends, I have my exercise friends, and then I have my friends' friends and they don't always mesh. And I think, yeah, I think that, and I, I don't know necessarily that it's race because I do, but it could be, it could be race. You know, when I do the art salon, I invite creative community. And I do think about diversity because you can't have uh, an artistic community without representing the entire community. It just doesn't feel righteous to me. And so I've, I've struggled with that because when you reach out to my creative community, friends of friends, it is like white person to white person to white person. Oh, a person of color. Or, oh, and, and it's weird and it feels false. And then you get very, quite frankly, then I worry about tokenism. You know, Mm -hmm. so it's always sort of a balance of like, I really want a diverse community. I really want to bring other voices. Like I do want to pass the mic. It's important to me to, to raise other people's voices because I'm not only am I just white privilege, I'm privilege privilege. I grew up middle class and my, even during my, my childhood went up to upper middle class. And so that concept is I want to step aside and let other people speak, but finding that can reek of tokenism and that. I struggle with that too. So even in that concept of white progressives saying they want to expand their community, I just, 
I think there are a lot of potholes along the way that white progressives are looking for, like, how do we be an ally and build community? Yeah, I had a question about allyship. Well, so, but how do you think, how would you advise white people to build diverse community? Or well, I, I think it, it's all about authenticity, right? If you can bond over something that has nothing to do with race, like you and I bonded, we bonded obviously over CrossFit, but I'm just saying, and we bonded over being the two ladies in CrossFit that were not 30 and blonde. So, you know, when you have something else, then it doesn't seem like you're constantly talking about race. But if the two, if you're like, if the only way you're bonding is because that person is black and this person's white, obviously there'll be, it's fraught with disaster. There's gotta be something else. There's gotta be, and, and I know that that's also a problem because a lot of black people have to have white interests in order to navigate the white world. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're interested in that. They're interested in the point where it can get them to where they need to go or in order to further the conversations that they're having in these white spaces, but it might not be that it's their general interest that they would like to constantly have conversations about. So it is kind of a problem when you want to bond with someone in an authentic way, but that person is in that space because they have to be, not because they want to be. Well, so that leads me to another question then, like can white people... In order to move us forward, can white, I mean, white people should navigate black spaces. That feels like that would be a part of then the recalibration. Yes, I believe that too, but I often feel like white people are very uncomfortable. So if I'm standing as a a, a black woman just standing there and a woman is feeling threatened, they're not going to want to talk to me. And so it's very hard, I think, for a, a white person to feel comfortable in all black spaces. It's true. But, you know, I love Lumber Park. I love that neighborhood. It is a it is a black neighborhood. It has an amazing town center with very vibrant stores, really good restaurants. Usually there's music in the streets. It feels, I got to be honest, it feels a little bit more like New York or San Francisco or Oakland in the sense that it just feels like the community goes outside um, mm-hmm. and into the sidewalks. And so it feels very alive where, where I live, even in Atwater, people are walking around, but it's everybody on their way to, you know, get a juice or go to the gym or go to yoga. It doesn't, nobody's just, it's sort of hanging out necessarily socializing on, on the sidewalk. And so I love going there, but the thing is, is I, I do feel on display, or I do feel like, oh, there's the white woman who wants to think she's cool. Like I worry, I worry about that because I am doing it out of just a genuine seeking out of new communities. I love the thing that makes Los Angeles so great is that there are so many small little villages to visit. Mm -hmm. And so I just like it being a traveler in my own city, but it, I don't ever want to make a black person feel uncomfortable in the space where they feel most comfortable. Does does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And this is a real issue. This will be a real problem because then there's also the problem that they think maybe you're going there to scope it out to gentrify gentrify the area. So I, you know, I, those, all those things sort of, I feel like get in the way of developing. I think it's hard to develop authentic. Yeah, it is. I, I I totally get it. And, and I totally think that you're right. And I think it's going to, it's, this is going to be a learning curve. This is going to, this is a process. 
I mean, and I guess it starts with us having this conversation right now, because really, I've never even thought about it this way. Have you? Have you ever thought about like, how are we going to integrate black and white spaces in a place where we where people can actually feel comfortable? I've never thought about it that way. I mean, I've been very happy to have my black friends and have my white friends. And you know, have a lot of white friends. I have a lot of white friends. But but okay, so I got called out on this when I went out to my um, black friends about having white friends and I pushed back saying, well, I have white friends. One of my friends very aptly said, you lived in Australia, an all white country for a long time. Not all white. There's a ton of Aborigine and indigenous people there. Yes, but they live there. They live quite segregated from the rest of the the white community, which is, you know, I I know that uh, Australia likes to push themselves as they're this fabulous, you know, multicultural society. They are not. Okay. They are not. And the Aboriginals live in their Aboriginal towns with their people so that they can feel comfortable and they can feel safe. And I'm all for that because of the overt racism in Australia. And if it's going to make you feel comfortable to, to stay, you know, and, and, the, and, and while in the beginning, I thought when I first moved to Australia, there were very few black people that were non-Aboriginal. Um, and a lot of people would seek out my attention. I would have thought maybe it's curiosity and not racism. But, you know, over time, I realized a lot of it was a little bit of a racism. And I would, and I, I mean, so many microaggressions happened over that time. And then of my friend who actually pointed this out to me said, but wait a minute, let's like break this down a little bit further. Who is your best friend in Australia? My best friend in Australia is a black woman that is from Zimbabwe, but she was born in Australia. And we met early in my time being in Australia. We've been friends for almost the entire time I was, I lived in Australia. So she called me out. So not only did she call me out that you lived in a white country, if you wouldn't have had any, um, you would have had no friends if you didn't have at least one white friend, but then your best friend was black. And then towards the end of my time in Australia, I realized I was adopted by that Zimbabwean community. And most of my friends were black um, women from Zimbabwe that, uh, you know, formed a community in Sydney. So it's very strange. Wait a minute. So a couple of questions, because you had several things that bound you to that group of women. One, you were all foreigners in Australia. Yes. Two, skin color. Yes. The same. And we could talk about hair. We could talk about makeup. We could talk about those things that I can never talk about with, you know, with a white person that would understand. I mean, the amount of times I was told, why can't you buy makeup? Well, let's actually put a pin in that. I want to get back to that. But let me actually ask you like about when you were with your black friends in Australia, did you talk about race or no? Or was it just. Oh, no, we talked about race. You didn't? No, we, we talked about race because there's a difference between the black American community and the black African community. And we would, we would talk about this all the time. And we would talk about obviously the race relations in Australia with black people and white people. So there was two things to talk about. It was the, the, the difference of being, you know, a black African and a black American and being different from everyone else. In, in Australia. So there was lots for us to talk about as far as race. Were any white women ever included in those conversations? No. 
Interesting. So never, I mean, I, yeah, but, but very funny is that all of us were interracially dating or married or. Wow. Almost all of us. Well, we have to do a whole nother episode on interracial relationships, but it's, I wanted to get back to, we can talk about hair. We can talk about makeup because I, does that, is that another thing? Female friendships, especially those from childhood, mm-hmm. you know, how we learned how to relate is, you know, what, what, what boys you like, or what girls you like, who you have crushes on, who your closest friends are, getting new clothes, what kind of fashion you're wearing, makeup, how you're wearing your hair. And so to some degree, does it just lend itself to, do those kinds of conversations lend itself to racial separation in in that sense? Well, I don't think so here in America. Because there's resources for everybody. Well, right? I can find here, like here, right? I remember having a student, this was way back when, when I was teaching LSAT prep at Princeton Review. And I had a student who, a black woman, so smart, didn't do very well on the LSAT, but she was really recruited by University of Wisconsin Law School, which is an excellent, excellent law school. So I was like, go. don't kid yourself she went and she came back she's like I'm not going there's nowhere to do my hair like that was you know and this is years ago I mean this is 20 years ago I I'm I am sure it's evolved in over 20 years but the but the fact is that stuck with me not only was she probably going to be one of a huge minority Mm -hmm. if she went there and have to totally traverse white space, but also she wouldn't have like even a place to go get her hair done. She might have to drive like the hour and a half to Milwaukee or drive down to Chicago. That seemed crazy to me. Again, I was like, I wouldn't go either. The Um, first three years in Australia, I had to do my own hair or every nine months I went home. So in that idea, like, so here you say, oh, there are resources for everybody. But we're really talking urban centers. There might be resources for yes. us. But there's um, still resources here. In Australia, there's, when I first arrived, I couldn't get makeup. I couldn't even buy pantyhose in my skin tone. There was no one to do my hair. So um, I basically had to learn how to do... Well, basically, that's when I started just wearing my hair natural because it just was easier to do that. Like You can't put chemicals in your hair if nobody knows how to do it for you. Right. What do we have to say like in closing up what do we say to those white progressive women who really want to diversify their friendship group? If you're in a space that is authentic to you and you see a person of color or black or a black person, and they're in that space, enjoying that same thing that you're enjoying, you could bond over this. Try not to bond over race try to bond over something authentic because then that is what builds the lasting friendship as opposed to just the acquaintanceship. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that's really great advice. For me with my white friends who really want to expand and diversify is like you need to accept the fact that right now we're not in a place where black women feel comfortable being their authentic selves and don't necessarily want to have to explain something to you. We had talked in the previous conversation and before we get off, I'd like to at least bring this up again. You say you would invite me to a barbecue, but I told you I, I would be fearful that I would I would step in it. 
And you're like, how? And I was like, oh, I, you know, I'm able to really step in shit anywhere I go. But I might have said, like, what if I said, what if it was a Juneteenth celebration? And I asked, you know, what was your family's history of celebrating Juneteenth? Or what if I asked, trying to make connection, like trying to connect. I talked all about the food, which somebody could hear as a microaggression or could hear as just a statement of ignorance, or even just a question of curiosity, even if it was just even seen as a question of curiosity. And I, and then I realized, you know, I said, oh my God, I'm sorry, that was so dense. Like, you know, you're like, that's forgivable. And I was like, but it's also exhausting. Yes, it can be. But if you're, if, if so if I've already invited you to the cookout, then I already am making space for you to be able to have these conversations. So you know what, Alex? I'm going to tell you this right now. I'm having Kwanzaa and you're coming. Okay. If I'm if I'm not in Sicily, I will be there. If you're not in Sicily. Oh, I would love to go to Sicily. Well, if we ever travel again, I am just letting you know, like once that, once we are let up, I am out of here. You're coming to Kwanzaa. Yes, I'm coming to Kwanzaa. Need advice? Have a question? Find us at womenbridgingthegap.com. We're happy to address your problems in our podcast, anonymously, of course. Spread the word by rating and reviewing wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, tune in for our discussion about fear, growth, and cancel culture. Morning, Lenya. How are you? Morning. I'm good. How are you? Your hair looks fabulous. Thank you so much. I have to say, for for the pandemic, I'm not going to tell you how long it's been, but a certain amount of dirt makes my hair curly. So <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm never going back to real life. This is it.